0: HD Smartcast. You're listening to a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hi, I'm Dharmini, and you're listening to Gender Question. Here, we will look at an issue that's in the news using the lens of gender. The idea is to take a blind spot and throw some light on it. Around the world, the month of June is celebrated as Pride Month to commemorate what is called the Stonewall Riots, that broke out on the 28th of June 1969 in Greenwich Village, New York City. The protests and demonstrations took place over a period of a few days, but as protests go, they were actually a response to years and years of hatred and discrimination against the gay community. What sparked the protest was a police raid in a popular gay bar called Stonewall Inn. But the real story behind it was the impunity of the police, the casual violence against queer people that had come to be accepted as the norm, and the utter apathy of the government towards some of the most marginalized and vulnerable members of our society, the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community. The protests lasted for five days and often saw large gatherings of people At the same time, these gatherings became a declaration of pride in an identity at a time when being gay was considered despicable and disgusting. The riots also led to the formation of the Gay Liberation Front, which organized a pride parade the following year to commemorate the rebellion. Now pride marches are held across the United States of America and in several countries around the world, including in India. During the course of June, I'd like to talk to you about the queer movement in India. But first, a clarification. Today, protests seem to have got a bad rep. Protesters are arrested and charge-sheeted, and an entire right-wing ecosystem exists on social media that misrepresents protesting as an anti-national activity. So let me clarify what I mean by protest. Protests challenge oppression. The act of protesting itself is not violence. The act of raising one's voice against a wrongdoing is an attempt to set things right. Not only for the individual who is protesting, but also for the community or the cause whom that individual represents. A protest is a plea for social change, for freedoms and welfare and improved life conditions that ultimately benefit an entire society and not just some sections of it. So the queer movement needs to be seen from the lens of not just a legal battle against a colonial law, it also needs to be seen from the lens of a social justice movement that sought to end the oppression of an entire class of people, question the discrimination that they faced repeatedly, and in turn diversify and enhance the way that society as a whole experiences life. Through these podcasts, we'll look at some historic moments of the queer movement and we'll also look at the legal battle against Section 377. And through this, I hope that I will be able to show you just how a people's movement fought against a repressive law, against police violence, and against socio-cultural prejudice helped change things for the better in our country. Section 377 was introduced to the Indian Penal Code in the 1860s and it criminalized carnal intercourse against the order of nature. The language of the law as you can see is vague. What is order of nature? What is carnal knowledge? Don't heterosexual relationships also fall under its purview? What then of consent between adults? What of privacy? What of personal liberty and all these constitutional values that were guaranteed to Indian citizens when the Constitution came into force in 1950? Simply put, section 377 criminalized any form of intercourse between consenting adults that was not penile vaginal. So unwittingly, a large swath of relationships had been breaking the law in the entirety of its existence. And if that was the case, then why should it have been retained in the IPC? That's just one part of it. The other is that Section 377 created a culture of impunity in the way that members of the LGBT community could be harassed, threatened and blackmailed leaving them with little recourse to the law to address the violence that they routinely faced. The law created what Justice A.P. Shah of the Delhi High Court called a class of unapprehended felons. And though to be arrested under Section 377, the police needed proof of this so-called unnatural carnal activity, that's not how they always went about it. So basically an entire community was considered unnatural because of this law and they were treated accordingly. Let's begin at the very end. On September 6, 2018, the Supreme Court of India ruled that Section 377 could no longer be upheld constitutionally. A five-judge bench, headed by the then Chief Justice of India, examined petitions brought in by a host of men, women and trans persons cutting across ages, class, and castes. This included a petition by Sangeet Natak Academy Award winner Navtej Johar and four others, Chef Ritu Dalmia, Johar's partner and journalist Sunil Mehra, hotelier Amannath, and businesswoman Aisha Kapoor. Besides this, petitions were also filed by hotelier Keshav Suri, and a group of former and current students of the Indian Institute of Technology. A petition was also filed by three trans women activists, led by Akkai Padmashali, who argued that the section was in direct contravention to the rights that had been guaranteed by an earlier judgment of the Supreme Court itself, called the Nalsa Judgment. Delivered in 2014, the Nalsa Judgment had recognised the legal identity of transgender persons for the first time. And yet, here was a law, Section 377, that criminalised their sexuality. In 2018, besides the whole clutch of petitions that I had mentioned earlier, two more petitions were filed against Section 377, one by a Lucknow-based activist called Arif Jafar, and another by members of the Hamsafar Trust including Ashok Rao Gavi. The court began to hear the matter in July of 2018. In what is now known as the Navtej Johar and Others versus Union of India verdict, the court ruled that the law violated several human rights guaranteed to Indian citizens by the Constitution of India, such as the right to life, the right to liberty, the right to equality, the right to privacy, dignity, and personhood. It also recognized the historical wrong that the communities of transgender persons as well as queer persons had been subjected to by Section 377. The journey to Naftej has three parts, each roughly coinciding with the three decades in which legal and social battles against Section 377 were fought. And that's how I'm going to tell this story. The first was the 1990s, when an NGO called the AIDS Bhedbhav Virod Andolan, or the ABVA, filed the first petition in the Delhi High Court. The second part is the 2000s, when NAS Foundation, an NGO that did HIV-AIDS intervention work, filed a petition in the Delhi High Court. The NAS Foundation argued that Section 377 prevented them from reaching out to communities at risk like gay men, kothis, pangtis, trans women like hijras and other communities because these communities were afraid of police action and legal action that could be taken against them by this law. It was this Delhi High Court case that eventually won a breakthrough judgment in 2009. The third part of this uh, movement is the 2010s, when the Delhi High Court's remarkable judgment of 2009 was challenged and subsequently reversed by the Supreme Court in 2013. Following this, a whole bunch of curative petitions were filed. And then, some years later, a fresh batch of petitions, Navtej Johar included, were filed as well. However, what was different this time was that, at this juncture, it was LGBT people who had filed these petitions against Section 377, whereas in the previous petitions, organisations like ABVA and NAS Foundation had filed them. Contiguous to this legal battle, a queer movement arose around the country. LGBT groups sprouted, first as pen pals seeking letter writers, which turned into intervention-based groups. People started meeting up. There were parties held, private parties, in people's homes. Uh, Discussions were held and shelters and safe spaces were created. These groups began to also create networks between themselves. For a group of people shunned due to their gender identities and sexual orientation, these networks of support were immensely valuable. Stay tuned for Chapter 1, The 1990s, where we'll talk of some of the earliest gay and lesbian groups that emerged in the country. If you have any questions, do reach out to me at the Raid Dhamini on Twitter. You can also leave your feedback at HT Smartcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Bye. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HT Smartcast. Редактор субтитров